Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. to be here today with Professor George Lakey, who um, is a longtime civil rights activist and recently retired from uh, serving as a sociology professor at Swarthmore College. So thank you for taking time to talk. Delighted to do it. So to jump right in, um, how has your Quaker faith informed your activism over the decades? For one thing, it's really supported me in hard times. Because it's one thing when a movement hits that, you know, takeoff point, and there's just so much support and so much uh, feedback from successes, that that keeps you going. But what about those down times? <laughs> it looks impossible. And that's when the faith, I think, becomes especially important. Yeah. So what is it about that faith in the down times that kind of is able to give you resilience or sustain you? A sense that I'm part of something way, way larger that not only transcends this historical moment, but is also operating within me. So it's the you know the living water of the tree of life that's that's uh, that animates us. And sometimes in the midst of the busyness of of a, of a, a rapidly ascending movement, we can even lose track of that because there's so much else to do. Uh, but then in the down times, it's terrific to remember. But wait a minute. I have this inner life that is also reflective of the Supreme Being. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, that resonates a lot for me. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah. So you've been doing human rights activism for over 60 years. That's right. Um, in what ways do you think um, activism has become easier? And in what ways has it actually become more complicated over, over these decades? It's become easier for the same reason it's become more complicated, which is <laughs> that there, we're in, engaged in uh, right now a society-wide polarization process, right, in which the center is, is shrinking and the wings, the right and the left, are growing. And that polarization process uh, actually makes it easier because it means more people are available. More, you could say that society is heating up and there's more volatility and more people who had been resistant to social activism previously are now moving, right? So, for example, school strikes in response to a Swedish teenager calls us out of school and we go out of school on Fridays, right? Okay, that was not possible five years ago. But because of the polarization, that kind of thing becomes available, and that makes it easier. However, what makes it harder is the polarization is kind of hard on the heart, you know, because along with polarization comes the violence and the, the, the extremity. Um, the synagogue around my the corner from where I live, who calls me up and says, hey, please come Friday night again. We'd appreciate nonviolent bodyguarding because the congregation is feeling uneasy again because of the, you know, the bombing somewhere else and so on. So, of course, a bunch of us rush over and are trying to be helpful. But that sense of, uh-oh, increased level of danger and uh, can also lead to a sense of despair or desperateness. Mm -hmm. 
and the best actions we take are not done with desperateness. Yeah. Right? yeah. So it's both more people are available for the movement. The movements are growing everywhere I go. I'm traveling all over the country on book tour for my current book, How We Win. And that's, uh, of course, a book in demand right now, How We Win. Yeah. Um, so that's fun. And bookstores full and that kind of thing. On the other hand, the downside is then how do we deal with the shocking uh, you know, massacres and such that happen. Yeah. So to pick up on that front, um, what do we do spiritually with despair? Mm -hmm. um, some people feel despair about the future of this country, knowing mm -hmm. what we know about um, close to a majority of uh, voters. Mm -hmm. um, and some, and more commonly, people feel despair around climate change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and how do we spiritually combat that? I learned a lot from Dr. King uh, from that, not because I knew him personally. I'd been in the same room with him, but more like a, sort of watching him carefully. And uh, and I was close to a colleague of his, Bayard Rustin, who was his major uh, you know, uh, strategist. And uh, Dr. King, uh, my sense of his strategy was to make friends with his despair. He would often talk about it. He would talk about it in sermons and so on. Uh, and it's one thing to deny despair and then let it run you. It's another thing to say, hey, despair is accompanying me. <laughs> it is a part of my reality, my daily reality, and I will make friends with it. And just understand, oh, it's right there with, along with me. And there's something about ending the denial, ending the resistance to it, but accepting that goes with the territory that then frees me up to notice the funny things that happen. And yeah. there's always funny things that happen yeah. in movement life yeah. and the contradictions and also being able to laugh at myself and my own foolishness and all the little mistakes that I make so that it, it, it all works out in the end. Love it, love it. So who were some of your, your role models in activism in your formative years? Mm -hmm. And who are some people you continue to look up to doing the work today? Well, certainly this guy, Byard Rustin, was, was very, very important to me because he, he uh, started as very young as a high schooler, a black guy, uh, as a high schooler uh, in, in a northern town being uh, so bold, I think he was 16, as to sit in the white, whites-only section of the movie theater, <laughs> even in high school still. And he got away with it partly because he was a football star. But anyway, <laughs> you know, and uh, so his getting that very early start and then learning so much and being so willing to share it. So he was hugely important to me. But a lot of, a, a lot of, the, uh, yeah. he was a Quaker, actually. Uh, and a lot of other Quakers were important as uh, model, role models for me. Yeah, and today? And today, I'm lately again being inspired by Alice Paul. This is the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage, right, uh -huh. in our country. Well, Alice Paul was the leader of the militant wing of the women's suffragists, the nonviolent direct action wing, which for the first time in American history picketed the White House, yeah. did all kinds of things that were so out of women's role. Right. You know, obedient at home, yeah. right? So out of out of that, out of character, and she was so bold and so willing to to be part of a polarizing process. Yeah, and it's very funny because the popular image yeah. of Quakers is kind of uh, peace, peace, peace. You know, peace, 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 be a peace, be a peace. And there she was making trouble uh, all the time. Yeah, uh, 
and still keeping a peaceful center inside mm -hmm. herself at the mm -hmm. same time. Uh, so she more and more, I think it's probably the anniversary of that huge success of women's vote, but also just um, her her way of looking at politics, her way of confronting uh, President Woodrow Wilson, her way of forcing him against his will to come out for women's mm -hmm. suffrage. Mm -hmm. That whole uh, strategy is fascinating to me. Yeah, very cool. So what can we learn from um, LGBT successes? When I think of gay rights just over the last 10, 15 years, I mean, it's astounding what's been accomplished. And is this a model of success? And if so, what can we learn from that? It is a model of success. I was in, well, I'm gay, and I came out in 1972, which was like way, way, way out of the, the curve, right? And so I suffered the pushback and the hostility and so on of that. And at the same time, the openings, opening, the openings that came along with that. And so I was part of that movement as it was really surging head in the 70s. So it was part of the 60s and 70s experience of growth, growth, expansion, expansion, right? So then in the 1980s, it was Ronald Reagan's job as president to lead the counteroffensive against the movements, which was highly effective because the movements, except for LGBT, went on the defensive. The labor movement went on the defensive, mm. uh, the civil rights movement, the defensive women's movement, environmentalists, all the major movements of the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. went on the defensive, except LGBT, because my movement kept pressing onward and onward. And what I mean by going on the offensive is setting new goals, not just trying to hang on to the same old, what, what has previously been achieved, which is what labor and civil rights did. No, the uh, LGBT mm -hmm. folks said, okay, now we're going to go for equal marriage. Equal marriage? No, no, no. You just uh, dealt with the AIDS thing successfully, uh, but surely not that. Yes, we're going to go for equal uh, marriage. And then that's starting to make, make gains in various cities and states. And then it's onward, onward to equal uh, equality in the military. Yeah, The military, our hallowed institution, you can't mm -hmm. mess with that. Yes, we can. Mm -hmm. And now it's the bathrooms. Right? It's always the next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. And if the other major movements had continued to be on the offensive strategically, we would be in way better shape now than we are. But we've, you know, reproductive rights is now an issue for the women's movement, and we thought we'd taken care of that. Um, uh, voting rights is now an issue, but the civil rights movement handled that, right? Well, it did, and then there's been the backsliding. So there's backsliding on labor, backsliding on all those fronts, because the worst thing you can do is go on the defensive yeah. strategically. Yeah. And what you have to do is go forward. That's what LGBT did, and that's why we are a model for the other movements. Great, great. Last question, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, no, no, I, I take that back. Um, first of all, why did you write this book? Uh, how We Win. Is that what it's called, How We Win? Yeah, How We Win. How We Win. Why did you write that? And what's your sort of primary argument over there? Well, the previous book was called Viking Economics. And it was looking in depth at Norway, Sweden, Denmark, yeah. and trying to understand how did they get from being 100 years ago a mess, such a mess, yeah. that a lot of Norwegians were coming here, right? Yeah, and, right. and Swedes right. and so on, right. getting out of town because of those countries were in such a wrecking shape. And now they're at the top of the heap. They're far in advance of the United States. More individual freedom than we have. Yeah. More equality, right. more shared prosperity. They, they decided poverty is so 19th century, let's get rid of it. They got rid of poverty mm -hmm. and so on. So 
they they are hugely in advance of us. And I was curious, how did they do that? And then I've realized a lot of the brilliant moves that they made, we could also make, and even though our context is quite different in some ways. But we, there are ways in which we can transform to, to make those moves in our country. But then, so I ended the book saying, so let's do likewise, right? So then immediately people started saying, George, but how? Like, yeah. what does that look like for us? Yeah. What are the actual uh, steps yeah. that we need to take? And so that's why I wrote How We Win, mm -hmm. to, show, to offer a kind of map, a kind of plan, yeah. a strategic plan yeah. for how to transform our society yeah. and handle the mess that we still yeah. have. Yeah. Okay, good. The last question for real. So it seems to me violence and nonviolence as activism is a spectrum, not always a black and white. That's right. And um, within that spectrum, what are the boundaries of legitimate moral social change work? Mm. Um, how far can one go in pressure uh, before they've crossed the line? Mm -hmm. And what do you ultimately advocate for in non in nonviolent activist work? Mm. Yes, I'm a strong believer that nonviolence is the gives us the space we need all yeah. the, that space actually we yeah. need uh, and means that we don't have to hurt other people yeah. in order to press for change. Yeah. Uh, Dr. King is a clear model, yeah. but actually there's lots of models yeah. of that where people were, well, in the, in, I think the civil rights movement, we're lucky to live in the United yeah. States because we've got that in our own history. Yeah. And the example of black students going into Mississippi, Klan territory, Klan territory, no help from local law enforcement because they were dressing up in sheets at night, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no help from the state level of, the, of students. The state wanted, the, wanted those students dead. Yeah. No help from the federal government because right. the Kennedy administration understood the Democratic Party is toast if it allies with the civil rights movement yeah. and it will lose the solid South, which indeed it right, did because right. it was finally forced to. So you have a situation where black students, they're in the middle of Klan territory yeah. surviving only because they were nonviolent. Oh, some have argued, though, and my understanding yeah. is that there were other violent forms of resistance mm -hmm. which were actually necessary for Dr. King's movement to also succeed. I've heard that argument yeah, well right and, and done additional research yeah. to, and to yeah. see the degree of the yeah. truth of that. Yeah. And actually, it's not true. Oh, it's not true. Okay. In fact, the director of the Mississippi uh, Operation yeah. of Student yeah. Nonviolent Coordinating Committee told me, I asked him directly, what, how, how you survived. Right. Not that all did, you understand. There were losses. People were killed. Because you have to assume, when you do a struggle for major change, that... The other side is going to kill you. Yeah. It's killed some of you. Yeah. Yeah. The whole question then becomes yeah. Yeah. how many of yeah. you and yeah. what are yeah. this uh, degree of injury. And and uh, nonviolent struggle, the history of it, as well as the civil rights movement's experience, is way fewer casualties yeah. when you choose nonviolence yeah. than if you choose violence. Wishing you lots of continued success in your teaching and writing and leading. Thank you very yeah. much. Friends, be sure to check out Professor George Lakey's uh, uh, new book, How We Win and Other publications and teachings.